Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of David Garneau by Fred Waugh. My name is Rebecca Jelaine, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Tsutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This interview was recorded during a Tea House symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of colour to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they've experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. David Garneau, Métis, is a visual arts professor at the University of Regina whose practice includes painting, curation, and critical writing. Fred Waugh is a BC poet who lives in Vancouver and on Kootenai Lake. In this interview, David talks about his time in the English department at the University of Calgary when Fred was also teaching there. He discusses the connections he makes between writing and visual art and how this hybrid practice provides him with the theoretical foundations he craves. Talking about his series of untitled paintings, David highlights the tensions of rage, humor, and inexplicability palpable in the still life form. Fred and David's conversation then moves into the politics, ethics, and anxieties around sharing Indigenous knowledges particularly in aesthetic representations. David argues that giving only a small portion of sacred Indigenous knowledge in art acts as an invitation into not knowing and an invitation into asking. Finally, David talks about his decision and commitment to being a Métis artist instead of simply an artist with Métis blood. Fred Waugh, and I'm going to interview uh, David Garneau this afternoon. All right, I'm David David. Garneau, and looking forward to the conversation. Well, David, I'm one of the, uh, I've I've known you for, and known of you for many years, and you were here, I think, at the University of Calgary. Yeah. uh, When I first arrived in the late 80s, early 90s, and my my memory of you, and you'll have to help me here, because my my memory is slipping, Mm -hmm. but... uh, you were involved in publishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's true. Well, I want to start by uh, saying that, uh, so I came, I was in the visual arts program first for about four years, and then shifted over to uh, English. I was, after my 
BFA. I actually went over to the philosophy department. I thought I wanted to be a philosopher. And then one day I was sitting around uh, in their common area and looking at all the philosophers, all guys, and I just had this profound feeling that I didn't want to be there, didn't want to be in that in that league. And uh, I said to myself that I was going to walk across the, the quad or whatever, and by the time I got to the other side, I was going to decide what I was going to do with my life, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and I w- was walking across, and I said, you know where I was happiest was in the English department. It was able to bring together a lot of different kinds of people, and I was always fascinated, especially with Vancouver-type school. My mom was born and raised there, and I was, since childhood, was there almost every summer. And uh, uh, Harry Kayuka was teaching in the University uh, of Calgary. I never took class with him, but I knew of his brother's work before that. Roy. Roy Kayuka. And so that integration of image and text and do do it yourself kind of mentality and but also community really appealed to me and literally I got to the other side of the, of the green there and I went and looked up Susie Rudy Dorsch and she happened to be in her office and anyway so I had to do I didn't have an undergrad in English I had a lot of courses I had to do four full courses in one spring summer set did them all and I aced them and I knew it was the right thing but the story I wanted to tell was towards no, the... So hold it, though. Yeah. This, was this for an MA? Yeah, I wanted to get in the MA program. Okay. And they said that, you know, if you did well in these courses, they would consider me, and they, they took me in. And then you came to the program, and I was in my second year of the MA. I was on my way out, trying to figure out where I was going to go. And you and Arona were in the lunch area, the whatever, the, the Mac Hall and sitting down for lunch, for some reason, you beckoned me over there, and I told you that I was Métis, and I hadn't talked to Susan or any other. I didn't want that to be a part. Somehow I, I thought it doesn't belong in the, in the setting or something. I don't know what I was thinking. And it was that conversation. You guys were just so open, and I don't know what it was. And this was at the time of the Min Kwan Panchayat and other things, and it allowed me to enter in to a larger discourse, bringing those two things together. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that. That was a very important, casual thing you guys did, but it was important to me. Um, and, of course, I promptly left English and didn't <laughs> continue. But, yes, I was but publishing. This was, you, were, you were in the MA program then. I was in the MA program, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I didn't take a course with you or Aruna. Aruna, I don't, had, maybe it just started around the same time or a little bit later. But what, uh, could you help me out, though, in terms of yeah. uh, this memory of publishing? You were involved yeah. with, uh, with what? So I started a magazine with uh, Mary Beth LaViolette and, oh, my gosh, I've forgotten the name. And uh, it was between Vancouver and Calgary called Artichoke. Right. And so it was right. a cheap web press thing. And uh, it, uh, it was very democratic. Everybody got paid 50 bucks for an article, uh, no matter whether it was a little review. And 50% of our writers had to be new. So we, it was just a thing we set up because we wanted to keep it fresh. We were responding to actually the Death of Fuse magazine. The very first right. piece of publishing I got in was in Fuse and uh, that it folded. And I had sort of the stray article and we decided to build a magazine around just these leftovers. And Paula, Pauline, uh, oh, now I forgot her name. Paula, Paula Gustafson was our main person in Vancouver. And she had a craft interest too. So we managed to bring uh, indigenous craft, uh, all the things that were part of fused while craft wasn't. But um, yeah, we wanted to bring it uh, for a reader-friendly type approach. 
So yeah, that started in 89 and it ran for 10 years. I was only involved with the first four or five. But you were writing then. Yeah, yeah, well in school, yeah. But weren't you publishing some writing in the magazine? Yeah, so I was writing for the uh, for Avenue Magazine, for the University Papers, um, Fuse Magazine, and then uh, Canadian Art and Border Crossings, all in the early 90s. Well, see, that's what I remember about you as when I first knew you here. Yeah. Oh, you're in writing. You're, you're a writer in publishing. Yeah. And then you pulled this disappearing act into art. Hey! <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't, call yeah, it, yeah. shouldn't call it a disappearing act, but no. I was, uh, and ever since I've been, I mean, I've known you as an artist and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and a critic, uh, yeah. primary, you know, uh, but uh, I've always been curious about mm-hmm. that, that jump and that, th- that, that connection that you've made between writing and, and art. Yeah, there was, it's been a draw either way, so nonfiction writing, critical, I always called myself a critical writer, um, was always there. Um, it's, it, the things do two different jobs, I guess. I, one thing that I liked about, I still like about art is that, uh, it has a presence that I guess is tied to a historical time, but it, it literally is a physical object in a space. And a book is the same way. Um, but essays and writing seem more occasional to me or something. I wanted the paintings to be more timeless. I'm not sure. And I felt the need, I've always felt the need to, to try and be in both worlds. And the discourse in the writing it seemed at that time, and it was very different from uh, uh, art, the art world. But at the moment of Min Kwan Panchat, all those things came together. Mm-hmm. You know, the people, our writers and artists, uh, with common interest outside of their own person. And I found that very attractive. So I guess that's been, was that maybe about 27 years ago or so? So I wrote my first significant piece for a parallelogram where I broke into that area. It was called um, Beyond the Pale, mm-hmm. looking for equality with the E in brackets. <laughs> Because there was a debate whether this work was any good. Mm -hmm. And I found that so offensive that Mm -hmm. indigenous work or uh, Southeast Asian work didn't count as Canadian art. Mm -hmm. And it just, I'm a logical thinker, and it just made no sense. It could only be racism, though I wouldn't want to call it that at the time. It just seemed stupid and bad thinking. Let's just step step back a minute. So after you did your MA in English, uh, then you went to into uh, doing a degree in art? No. So I first thing I did was in the early 80s, <clears throat> I was in early childhood education. So I worked in daycare. Uh, I worked for the city doing kids' arts programs. Then I finally got the courage to go to my, do my BFA. I didn't do well in high school, so I didn't qualify right away. So I went to Mount Royal College. And it was a wonderful experience, including writing. Um, I'll never forget, I told uh, two different English profs that I wanted to, to write. And they said, well, write. And they allowed me to do projects separate that I got them to read and just get feedback to see whether I had some stuff. And I got good grades generally. So, yeah, I was there. But I didn't have a community at that point. So when I came back to do the BFA, uh, that was uh, mid-'80s through till '89, I graduated um, yeah, I was an artist, um, but there I couldn't find a graduate program that I that I felt satisfied what I wanted to do, and so 
the English department provided that, so it was theoretical mm-hmm. rather than the practice and the sort of formalism that sort of ran the school. So you're training time. in art, in vi- like in, First. Paint, in painting and drawing and that, yeah. uh, those skills. Yeah. That happened in your BFA. Definitely in the BFA. And then yeah. you didn't follow, you didn't proceed, you didn't go any further than that I didn't go to the MFA because I, 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 I needed, well, what happened was I, in my second year, I met Sylvia, my partner still, and she was going to go to Halifax, and I said, that was within a month of meeting her, I said, I hope you like company, we're going together. <laughs> and so I went there, and I forgot her name, but there was a you know postmodern theorist that just blew my mind. And when I came back to Calgary, you know, once you've been to Paris, <laughs> you can't go back to the farm. So there was no theory of that caliber in the visual arts department, and it just seemed wrong or backwards but it was in English so those courses uh, were so fascinating to me so when I decided to go back to do a master's degree English made the most sense and I'm, I'm so glad I did I mean it helped with the writing but also um, thinking through the visual hmm. but also the necessity of of uh, publishing of writing about art so you learned about Roy Kiyoka in in, no. When you were doing your BFA? No, as a kid, as a kid in in Vancouver. Um, I'm trying to remember. I also met a man-woman uh-huh. in my childhood. He was in Edmonton at that time. Uh, all these artists that aren't in the history books or wasn't in that time. But I also, this is going to sound strange, I, I attended lectures. I don't know if they were through UBC or whatever, but flyers would come out and I'd be visiting my grandparents. So this would be like... Uh, 78, 79, and go to a punk club, or sometimes there's a feminist lecture, and uh, yeah, so there's this and you're other just world. just a teenager. Just a teenager, and a fly on the wall, never speaking up, but also, I'm trying to remember the gallery that his work came in. It was a photo series, a number of photo series that he did that I, I was just so impressed by the poetry and the images coming together. It wasn't my art, but it was just this other world, this collision of image and text. Stone gloves, maybe. I text. don't even know to this image, day. Text. Right. Later on, in the 80s, he did some self-portraits, which I thought were incredibly poignant. Um, yeah, so I don't know the culture so well, but it was always there as the, the background, okay. the possibility. Curious, I mean, I'm just curious because it's a background we share. Oh, okay. You know, I, and Kiyoka was a very important uh, artist to me yeah. uh, all through the 60s, 70s, and Okay. You know, uh, until he, well, right until he died in the 90s, you know. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that so let's get back to this this hybrid practice you've yeah. uh, set up for yourself. Um, you you've always uh, you've always set it up as a kind of contestatory. I would agree with that. That's that's how <laughs> my mind is. <laughs> situation. So and I and we can talk about the some of the critical writing because I've re- I've read I've read some of your critical writing when mm-hmm. I can when I can mm-hmm. get hold of it and. Um, uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit about, you showed yesterday a series of uh, paintings. Yes. Uh, I, I forget what they're, if you had. I don't have a title it. for the set, yeah. Okay, but these, yeah. these were, uh, these are stunning paintings of uh, sort of prodding the whole, uh, the, the whole indigenous context uh, yeah. and, and the discourse around indigeneity, if we want to use that, that term. Yeah. But uh, they were also kind of, uh, 
I shouldn't say violent because they're so humorous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, but putting a rock between two books, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And binding them. <laughs> and the binding and, and yeah. the pressure. Every, every, everyone you showed, there was this kind of pressure on things. Yeah. So uh, could you talk a little bit about that sense you have in thinking and, yes. uh, about, I don't know if it's just about ingenuity, but probably it's, it's generally it's something in your mind, this yeah. notion of a kind of an aggressiveness? Well, part of it is uh, I, I'm fascinated with, always been fascinated with still lives because they were a marginal art practice way down the ontological hierarchy of art history. Often uh, it was the only thing often women would be able to do. Uh, they would get to a high level and they weren't allowed to work from uh, the, the bodies. And so they were excluded from doing history paintings. And so often you'll find incredible subtext. Sometimes they're quite literal and memento mori type themes in these still lives. There were also uh, essays on conquest. I mean, items coming from all over the place, that Foucaultian notion, you know, of the, um, oh, I'm, now I've forgotten the terms. Now I'm feeling the, the aged thing. But the, <laughs> the idea of... <laughs> well, you, are, you are an elder. <laughs> the idea of the garden and the library being these places that um, concentrate all these other places. Uh, that's what fascinates me about art generally, but particularly about still lives. And so I've been interested in how can I indigenize the still lives? How can I bring in these themes that are important? How can I um, give a hint of the complex arguments and difficulties that are happening right now, um, but not in a way just as a punchline illustration? Though some of them seem like one-liners, there's quite a, a series of levels, so that if you've got a rock uh, bound between two books... Um, which two books they are to me are important. So they're all indigenous, almost all of them are indigenous authors writing about indigenous experience or about other indigenous things. And this is a, this is a, our equivalent of the Harlem Renaissance before indigenous people are writing basically to affirm their humanity or all the abuses that have been heaped on folks. And now <clears throat> we're writing critically to and about each other trying to figure out who we are and more particularly where we want to go, what we want to be. And this is particularly true for Métis spaces. There aren't a lot of Métis theorists and writers, but almost all the indigenous folks in academia are mixed blood people, you know, mm-hmm. they, and they're definitely all bicultural. And so how do we express that bicultural experience and tensions? And so for me, the still lives have tensions. So there's either the weighted tensions of, of books on top of a rock, the rocks refer to grandfathers, and um, if you're talking to elders or people who are identifying more with land than with books, um, these are symbols or actual presences of earth knowledge. And people have a very special relationship with stones um, as signifiers of that knowledge. And books are antithetical to that until they're not. And so we live in this really anxious moment. So not that long ago, elders would say, this knowledge is secret and sacred, and we're not going to share it because we were burned in the past by letting um, non-Indigenous art authors turn them, or, or academics turn them into books, and then they became fixed. And we heard quite a bit that about that this weekend, the need for process, orality, endurance, mm-hmm. but also embodiment and sharing. And But lately, because of the climate crisis, um, I've seen this on the West Coast and Blackfoot territory here and Cree territory north of here and 
Saskatchewan, where elders are saying there are certain knowledges people need to know, and it's okay if it's published, it's okay if a non-Indigenous person does it, because this is extra personal and extra cultural knowledge. I have anxiety about that too, because again, that's what was felt before with the salvage uh, uh, efforts, you know, anthropologists, mm-hmm. because Indigenous people knew that this might be a loss, so then they gave it away too. So it's just so complex. So I value these books deeply and yet see them are concerned that displacing actual persons. Okay, as, a, as someone, I'm not Indigenous, so yeah. I, I'm looking, I look at, at these paintings and I don't know what the books are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you do. You, yeah. These are, these are uh, important. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're communicating to someone there. You're yeah. communicating to people who might know who, which books these are. Yeah. How does that, how do you... This is so funny. It's like this conversation um, is picked up from 30 years ago or something because I remember talking to you. I can't remember who else was in the room. And I was trying to get into the headspace of, I think it was Swift Current, um, early computer stuff you were doing and other things where there were conversations like with Roy Meeky or others, and they were so inny. <laughs> and I said, you guys are writing to five people. <laughs> and then when I was painting, particularly there's a wonderful new book by Leanne Simpson that I just keep wrestling with because um, when I've talked to people, actually it was someone in the downtown east side in Vancouver saying that they can't identify with um, people who have access to reserve land, say, or that they've been disenfranchised from their community, so they don't have the knowledge and relationship to community. So are they are they Indians? Are they Cree or what are they? What is this position when they're disenfranchised from the thing that's supposed to make them who they are? Um, but these are like urban Indians. Urban Indians, urban yeah, Indians, which is yeah. more than half half of us. And um, But I was thinking about that conversation because, okay, I'm going to put this Leanne Simpson book here and I'm going to put it against a more anthropological book. And someone who has these two books on the shelf, or let's say three books, that's going to be five people. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and I took the covers off. Lately, I've been putting the covers back on just to make sure people get that there's some jokes here. But I want those people to go back through their books and say, okay, maybe he's saying this. But in that reference, they're not going to know what I'm saying. I'm just putting a juxtaposition. But this goes to something that happened. This is a bit oblique, but I had a, one of my grad students. Um, I've been very fortunate to have Indigenous grad students every year that I've been teaching at the University of Regina. And they bring complex histories and, and uh, ideas. It's, it's been great. But Keith Bird's one of them. And he wanted to bring teachings from uh, sacred ceremony from Sundance. And they're not supposed to be represented. And uh, he said to myself and to Roy Bison, the elder I was working with, he said, I just want to give kids a sense of this whole other world, urban kids, that they, indigenous urban kids, this whole other world that they could access just by asking, but they don't know how to get in. And he wanted to make the gallery into like this portal. And the elder said, well, now this is an interesting problem. We agree with you. But they're, you're right. They won't even come to the first level of ceremony, a pipe ceremony, to get to the next levels. And so they, they went away. He said, the elder said, you know, we're, I'm going to have to take this to a council and figure this out. And he comes back later and he says, 10%. We've decided how you can do it. You can represent 10%. <laughs> 
because that's not going to give everything away. You're not going to be able to illustrate, you know, even a full object or a ceremony. But and so Keith did fill this gallery full of these images that were oblique and completely illegible um, to non-Indigenous folks. And I was lucky. I have been to Sundance, so I can recognize, okay, that whistle, and this might be that. But there are other knowledges I couldn't tell. And so, but then I would have to ask, and now I'm in it. <laughs> and I found that fascinating. So in these still lives, there's a, an immediate joke that almost anybody could get, whether you're a student and feeling pressure or like an apple between two books, you know, um, the, the idea of being red on the outside and white on the inside. Um, but then, anyways, there's so many other levels. And so I was interested in giving 10% of what this experience might be like. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's not available for everybody, but then you could ask a question, and then suddenly we'd have this big conversation. But then you're already in it. That's an interesting aesthetic proposition mm -hmm. in the, in mm -hmm. terms of you know the uh, the poetics of the non-referential and yeah. uh, and that so that you uh, you're deliberately playing around in a in a shadowy area yes. that uh, only you, as, as you say, you and yeah. five others know about at the same time, it's an invitation into not knowing. To not knowing and to asking, but also to find some kind of equivalence for yourself from your position. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that I do love about poetry is that um, all those empty spaces and not concluding, you know, mm -hmm. not drawing to a conclusion, here's my thesis, antithesis, synthesis, um, it's this experience, and I, you know, I've, I've seen people circulating Diamond Grill, and that was an important book too, because you got there's a lot of senses in that book. You mm -hmm. know, um, last night or the night before, you're reading and the, the banging of those doors, and when I heard you say that, I remember reading that and feeling that. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, but there's there's smells, there's perceptions, but it isn't leading to some conclusive uh, therefore. Mm -hmm. You know, and I find that uh, wonderful about painting too. And I do tend to, not always, but I tend to paint in a realist style. So that's your entry point, you know, the illusion, the pleasure of, you know, this sticky substance becoming something real. Yeah. But and then what, you know? Well, at the same time, though, and I'd like to tie this in with another sense uh, that you've talked about. Um, I'm, I'm quoting you here okay. from one of those pieces. Of particular interest is the special role of the artist not as teacher mm -hmm. or pre perpetuator of customary culture, mm. but as a provocateur, yeah. an unreliable but necessary agent who plays between and among disciplines and cultures to create startling, non-beautiful, needful disruptions and build hybrid possibilities that resist containment by either the colonial or the traditional. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I'm you, still proud of that. I still agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, okay, uh, okay, yeah, so, yeah. So you're a provocateur. Definitely. And uh, uh, being a agent provocateur, you have to, uh, you've ado you're adopting, like, so we're talking about this this particular series, this unnamed series as yeah. yet. Uh, that's that's provocative. You're provoking, yeah. you, you know, you don't, you don't include all the information. Yeah. So... What is that provocation? What do you hope that provocation does? Or do you, do you, do you, or are you just playing with it? So I'm not an agent provocateur or a player in the sense of um, like a, a catalyst or a catalytic agent. The catalyst is something that causes a change without itself being changed. I feel changed in each of these things, in the writing and, and the painting, particularly in the writing. That passage, that section, I'm, I'm still very proud of because... I'm interested in 
I've described it as three varieties of nativeness. And the traditional um, is traditional. It's uh, customary. It's things as they are. And uh, no culture can exist with only keeping that kind of traditionalism. It's always in tension with change. But it's, it's, a, it's a grounding feature. Um, but the contemporary, even the word art, so the customary and traditional aren't um, held by the term art. Art something that's applied to a pre-existing thing in that case. But art doesn't know itself. So painting has a history, sculpture has a history, art doesn't really have a history except of um, contestation. I've not been able to find a single person able to define that word. You know, it's a set of practices, it's, it changes from time to time. And so that to me is a productive site. And the similarly goes for the identity of Métis. It's got a history a very contested and unusual one that people tr keep trying to settle, but it's always been this space in between and not a comfortable space. Um, it's never going to be a reified space, I don't think. Um, so that's why I luxuriate in the, in the space of art, because it is a space of possibility. And it's wise that culture leaves us some room to do something that it knows not what it needs, um, whether it's we call that poetry art. And it's not all art, not all poetry. But we all know those people who practice that, and they're not just expressing themselves, you know? They're, they're, something overcomes you in that space of exploration and play. Um, yeah, but it's, it's uncontainable. And that's why I was trying to describe, and I still am not successful in wanting to make artworks that will persist beyond my identity, persist beyond this particular time period. It's interesting, when I was showing those slides, I had slides from 20 years ago, or from 15 years ago, or 20 years ago. To me, they all look the same. You know, I don't think there's a sense of progress in them at all. Mm -hmm. They are exactly what they're meant to be. And, and that passage, too, it's not tied to nouns that are stuck in a particular historical moment. I think that's, those are kind of timeless thoughts. But they will have, coming out of my mouth, they'll have a particular type of resonance. And it's funny, that passage... Um, comes from a, a, an essay that's uh, very particular. It's grounded in Rebecca Belmore's yell <laughs> and this very specific altering uh, thing that her voice did in a space um, and other sites of incompatibility, you know, someone else uh, pretending to behead a, a woman or this kind of thing, yeah. or Terrence Wool's gut. And these things that are very specific, very particular, but not containable. And I, I just love that about art. You know, we think you've got a handle on it. Another generation unhandles it, you know? Okay, the, but the, one of the, I'm really fascinated by this because I also am very interested in hybridity and mm -hmm. have worked most of my life trying to art articulate its dynamics yeah. uh, somehow. But so, the, and this notion of provocation yeah. uh, interests me and fascinates me. And, and then you... And, and then I'll just want to quote another. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Let's see if I agree with myself well, now. Well, just because <laughs> this starts to, you know, this all starts to tie together. Mm -hmm. um, um, you're talking about irreconcilable spaces of aboriginality. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that are re aspects of the Indian residential school legacy that are discouraged from disclosure in uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission events such as rage, mm -hmm. the refusal to forgive, yeah. The naming of names, 
the details of intergenerational effects, the use of indigenous people in the schools, the yeah. deformation yeah. of masculinity there, yeah. talking about what happened to pay out money and how it distorts individuals, families, and communities, and so on. So there's this, there's this uh, anger, rage, uh, friction, yeah. uh, dissing behind... Uh, that goes along with this provocation. Yeah. Right? So these, this list of all were all the things that were not permitted by the discourse of the TRC. And I was very lucky, thanks to a shirt grant, uh, Ashok Mathur was part of this team, Kiwi Martin, Dylan Robinson. Um, and we were able to go to the events in Vancouver, Edmonton, uh, where else? Montreal. And I had other personal, smaller events that I went to. And I was, um, and I actually wrote this before this stuff, <laughs> the first draft uh, that uh, Ayumi um, uh, helped me edit. And I was predicting these things, and then they were true. But um, and some things I didn't know. I knew that the names wouldn't be allowed. But the rage I want to talk about a little bit. So my career trajectory was that I'm the eldest of five kids, and um, I worked at a summer camp in be like 1977 or so, at the age of 16, and then, or no, 17, 16, uh, called the Atonement Home. And so this was a place where primarily Indigenous, uh, Métis and First Nations kids, primarily from the Edmonton area in the north, when there was a crisis at home, they would go to this place. And it could be overnight, could be as long as a year. And I worked there, I thought it was like a summer camp, and in the summer camp version, it pretty much was. But it was run by nuns, and Catholic nuns, and I was raised Catholic. And the atonement home in Edmonton that I had coming to work with them after high school um, was set up like an Indian residential school. So you had the nuns' floor, the girls' floor, the boys' floor, um, the beds. Everything was the same, except they went to a day school uh, nearby. But they were in residence there. And just so many things collided for me there and I don't want to talk about them all but I was implicated in a system where I won't say there was abuse there certainly not sexual abuse that I was aware of and I've been trying to track um, documents and, and things and I haven't been able been too successful I, every time I'm in Edmonton I find an indigenous person did you know about this place and no because often they didn't know because the kids were taken to these places um, I remember one child his father killed his mother in front of him, you know, and so they were probably as, as like a shelter. So sometimes these histories are just erased in the place. The building exists, but the place doesn't. Um, uh, yeah, I've been getting choked up thinking about it, but what, wh whatever happened there, I just realized the wrongness of it, and that's what led me to early child education. So I wanted to be an artist, but I needed to understand pedagogy, I need to understand the psychology, I need to understand these things. And I didn't indigenize it at that point, it was adults and kids. And um, yeah, and I worked at daycare and all every summer that I worked, uh, that I was a student, I was working in daycare in the summers. And I needed to work some of that stuff out for myself. And it, yeah, it began and ended with rage, uh, personal rage, family things, um, but particularly um, finding myself an agent in this space. So I was hired to work with kids with no qualifications, and the, the nuns, the institution, didn't care. Um, I was able to take a boy from Edmonton on the bus to Calgary. 
I was, I would have been 18 years old because I wanted to meet my parents and I was naive. And when I think about that now, the possibilities for abuse were enormous. And I, I just, yeah, so it begins an outrage. Um, when I read that, hear that list again, it brings up those things that, um, and I've had so minor experiences compared to all the Indigenous folks that I know. And well, I'm kind of a, I'm aligning this to my to myself mm. uh, since I, when I was writing Diamond Grill, my sense of it was I was writing out of a deep anger. So there's a, a kind of racial anger that I have that I've got to kind of deal with. I wrote that in the 80s, and that's, yeah. you know, so I was trying to. Uh, Get it out. So I'm really fascinated by this notion of, that you're playing with in your critical, in some of this critical writing. I think that's a beautiful kind of uh, statement to make on uh, the TRC mm -hmm. uh, about that list of things that aren't aren't allowed. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And so that in a, in a sense it start it, it in a sense it kind of puts a stopper on it and puts us right back into where we come from, mm -hmm, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm, right? Where, where that, that whole sense of rage and resistance and, 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 the, and a kind of anger be, behind that. So uh, you're obviously very aware of that. You're Métis. Mm -hmm. um, I'm part Chinese, Swedish, I'm mm -hmm. mixed blood. Anyway, yeah. does, do you think that there's uh, a kind of energy that's generated by being between? Yeah. So this rage is, there's a personal rage that I don't think I'll, I'll rarely talk about, you know. Um, it's mostly on the behalf of others. Um, growing up in a group of kids in, on the edge of downtown Edmonton and watching them slowly be disenfranchised and disenfranchise themselves from futures. You know, growing up with kids where we're all the same, you know, better and less good at soccer or whatever we were interested in. And then kids turning to drugs, turning to really seeing no possibility for themselves in the systems as they are. It was just stunning and, and horrifying to me. And then seeing the mechanisms that make that possible and necessary in terms of prejudice and education systems and employment and so on. It's just, just stunning to me, which means recognizing my privilege. And so what beyond having a good life am I to do? <laughs> and so I'm already aligned with these folks and it's a, it's a gradual alignment, a gradual, I, I, I think I'm a very late bloomer. <laughs> I'm in interviewing Richard Fung. I just can't believe his consciousness at such an early age. And I didn't have that. Uh, just as I mentioned, sort of being a fly on the wall in Vancouver or even in Calgary here and not really going to things as and becoming a presence until with Min Kwan Pranchet, actually. And the only reason I went to that was at the Chinese Cultural Center and I worked at the bookstore next door and uh, was able to take off the Saturday because this thing was happening, but not the Sunday because that'd be a bookstore. But it was proximity. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be connected in so many ways to people who are, you know, have been lifelong friends, you know. Well, yeah, you've always struck me as being a very deliberate and intentional uh, person in your practices. and uh... Yeah, but not community-oriented. Now it's becoming more... Actually, it's true, but maybe just not feeling myself as invested, whereas now it's central. I mean, almost all my work is collaborative now. Well, I mean, I've always known you were Métis. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has struck me about you since you went to Regina and, and have been more public with, yeah. with your uh, Métisness 
that is that, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what position does that recognition of your, of, or your willingness to pronounce yourself Métis, yeah. uh, how does that affect your practice and how does that affect yeah. your community and what kind of community, what kind of relationships yeah. has that allowed you to build up? You told me that you didn't tell U University of Regina that you were Métis. No. no. Right? And then you came in and said, okay, but don't okay, you realize so you're tired of Métis? I may tell the story. That's great. I really appreciate this. So, um, well, I'm going to tell a couple of stories that I've told before, but in 1980, when I was working at the Ad Atonement Home, I had my first art show. It was in a gallery called the Bear Claw Gallery, which still exists on a different location. A reporter comes in there. I've done these figures, Joe Fafard-type figures okay. of sculptures. men on the street, sculptures. Yeah. And they were called the Boyle Street Boys because I really identified with these men growing up. I learned chess. I learned magic tricks, stories from these guys. So it's between the, the library in Church, Winston Churchill Square, uh, where I practically lived, and the Arc, Edmonton Art Gallery, and then the mission or the Marion Center where, as Catholics, we had our church kind of thing. And then, yeah, so the, this, that was my center. And I learned from these guys. So I, I, when I decided I was going to be an artist, I was making these figures. The reporter comes in and she says, you know, uh, well, you're Métis. I, I had never heard that word before. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he said, well, you're Garneau. Are you descendant of Laurent Garneau? He said, yeah. And he says, well, he's like one of the most important Métis people around this area. And the neighborhood's named after him. Of course, I knew that. I grew up with all these stories. But there were family stories. There were personal stories. What's that got to do with anything? Uh, Indian blood, that's all we knew. Um, and then she says, well, but you're showing in an indigenous gallery, an Aboriginal gallery. And I'm looking around, and these are just art I love. And <laughs> I did not identify in that way. So I went and talked to my dad, and he gave me a book called One and a Half Men, which was about... Um, basically the, the Marxist um, Métis of the 1920s and 30s of whom I related to, and it begins with a little thing on Laurent Garneau, and it's like, whoa, what is this? But the idea that these family stories were part of a larger history was and this important. was in 1980. That was in 1980, so it was 18. So fast forward to Min Kwan Panchayat, right that this incredible year or so, um, uh, Cheryl Rondell says, comes up to me. So we were living, I don't know if you remember, um, there are all these, uh, Ashok, no, he didn't actually live there, but a bunch of MFA or MA students where we were all living uh, on uh, Capitol Hill. Oh. It was a Weeds Cafe, and there were, anyways, yeah, a bunch of us for about 10 years, there were all writers and artists living there, maybe still are. And Cheryl Rondell comes to me one day and says, Garno, I'd interviewed her for a magazine at one point, and Garno, you know, you have a responsibility now. I've let you slide, but you've got to you've got to join up, basically. So that's one of the reasons why I went to that Min Kwan Panchat meeting, and then wrote that article Beyond the Pale, and um, did other reviews, and was sort of part of that circle, more on the edge, but very supportive and identifying more and more with mm -hmm. it. When I moved to Regina in 1999, though. Now I have a position, you know, which I never thought I'd be a professor. I was a uh, sessional at Alberta College of Art and Design and definitely identified as Métis to all the Indigenous students there, and so made friends that I'm still with. But um, there, uh, first thing I go to my office, second week or so, someone put a proud-to-be-Métis pin on my door. 
And then Bob Boyer walks in, and I'd known him for about a year before that. And he comes in, he lets himself down, he says, Garneau, uh, what was the line? Something like, um, you could have sat on the fence in Alberta, but not here. You're going to be a white guy, or you're going to be a Métis guy, and therefore an Indigenous guy, or not. And then he left. And I had to stew on that, because I had made what I would call Métis art, uh, shown at the Alberta Biennial a couple of years before in an important video to me. Um, but I literally had to soul search for about six months because it meant that I, if I was going to be a Métis artist, not just an artist with Métis blood, that was going to be a serious commitment. And I decided at that point. And I fell into some wonderful friendships there um, that allowed that to be possible. Now, what date are we talking about here? Uh, 1999. Right. And so 1999 and then 2000. But you had deci- hadn't you decided before Inside. then? Oh, yeah, and with my family. So my dad had published, this is the other thing, the genealogy. He had published this huge website that's still up um, that traces the, ideal, uh, the geolo- genealogy very thoroughly. He was used by reference by many others. Um, he calls himself uh, Métis, but not politicized. So all those things became possible. And then, but it caused turmoil in the family as to what that might mean. So, but I have to credit that as well. Mm-hmm. So then the private story becomes public. But what does this mean as a person in the world? When I talk to you, um, it'd be 93 or two, right around that same time, what I was saying was I didn't want to be left off the I, I have white privilege. I didn't want to be left off the hook during the cultural wars of that time and uh, side with indigenous and therefore yeah bad white people or whatever. To me, I've always understood my relationship as a, as a contested site. So even when you say about articulating Métis, this is a central part of what I'm doing in the last five years with the public art projects. So just as an example, so public art project I'm doing in Edmonton, have a meeting. I asked the Métis Nation of Edmonton to um, assemble a, a group so I can consult uh, elders and um, we sit around the table and I said, okay, I've been doing all kinds of research. I have 400 images to come up with and I've got a number, but I, I need your help. I want to articulate ourselves visually. So they said, okay, we've done our research. They come in with the binders and the pictures. We need all of this. And I said, well, look at this. I put up my slideshow and everything that they showed, I had already done the paintings for it. Not just research, I've done the paintings. And I said, okay, we've got another hour and a half. Uh, tell me more. And what they realized was that that was the limit of the visuality of Métis-ness. And it was stuck in the 19th century and some 20th century uh, things, but not really. And they require artists. They need us to articulate their positions and their complexity. And to do it in painting, so different from photography, from um, uh, prose, um, they need the poets, they need the storytellers, and not to illustrate and represent in that way, but to imagine. And so that is a, an incredible thing for an artist to have. You know, I feel like, uh, I'm not comparing myself to Michelangelo, but the idea of Michelangelo being needed by a community rather than just making commodities for whoever, that's been life-changing. And it's uh, meant that I um, need to uh, collaborate in a true sense with all these people. Um, Yeah, it's led to all kinds of projects. Well, let's, 
One of the things that I've run into in my thinking and trying to deal with hybridity is this sense of equivocation. Mm. Right? We're caught. We're caught between. I feel yeah. caught between a white world and a non-white world, and uh, I don't. And I've always resisted kind of going to, totally to one or the other. I, I, I've tried to eke out a space where that betweenness, as I said the other day, you know, standing in the doorway yeah. is where I want to be. I don't want. <laughs> I won't. I don't want to be in either room exclusively. Yeah. yeah. Does that, how does that affect? Oh, yeah. It's, so it's, for me, it's what I was saying is that space of art is that because it's not definable, you know, and it keeps evading description. As a critic, you might come to the end of your tether and get bored, and then you see something new that just refreshes you again, and you, your thinking has to catch up to it. And so the way I've always articulated is that I'm, I'm humble before the, pro, before the object. You know, I... I I, I'm seeing if I can measure up and, and learn something new from that thing and, and it's sort of a discrete work of art but also particularly literature and poetry um, I don't think I occupy the liminal space as much I need the liminal space because it's a protected space right? not being one or the other and as I was articulating the other night I need that for myself. I need to be able to have a room of one's own, you know, where I'm drawing or painting or whatever I'm doing that is outside of uh, surveillance. That, more than anything else, I need that space um, for thinking to, to, to take time. And the university offers that, you know. They offer me a studio and so on. I give them service, I think pretty good service. But what they give me is uh, incredibly evalu- valuable in terms of that space and that opportunity to have a subject position as a professor, which, what is that? I mean, a professor, you think you know, you get a picture, but it's never an art professor or Mm -hmm. creative writing professor that comes to mind. So these things escape the scrutiny of the age in pretty successful ways. And until we fully instrumentalize ourselves, um, we can keep that space. But if we articulate ourselves into a place of complete service, we'll lose that. So that's very complex and difficult, but art is more resilient than most things that way. As a Métis person, though, I will have to say that uh, Métis culture is incredibly... Um, it's its always been, uh, well, except in its golden time, under phenomenal stress. And it's got a depth in people... Um, I have to be very careful here. What I would say is that um, I've been very interested in the last little while in the spiritual, indigenous spirituality and relations to the land, and I've had to go to the Cree for that or to um, the Estonian Nakoda uh, for that um, or other um, Blackfoot tribes. So I've been very grateful to be able to talk with elders and learn. I just came from a, I guess you call it a camp, but it was a four-day, four-night uh, intense, just a small group of us in a Quonset hut hearing the creation story. And it, as uh, the elder was saying, it's, it's, the, it's the introduction to the introduction. The real thing takes four months to tell the story, and there's songs. But I got enough of a glimpse of it to... Um, it was profound. <laughs> okay. And so um, knowing that there's something beyond the doorstep that is not mine, 
but that I have been given to um, access to. And they gave me access to that because that they want that to inform my paintings. Mm -hmm. So to be involved in a community, not in a fictional sense or in a, a selective sense, but in an obligatory sense, has been profound to me. And I'm still weighing the consequences. So in the bridge project, it's caused me to paint ways that I don't paint, mm -hmm. but also to work with you know about a dozen other artists and give them a sensibility and a color palette, but they're doing their own things, but none of them are expressing themselves either. We're ex trying to express this in-between culture. Maybe we could finish off with this dynamic that you've, you're illustrating in this series of... <laughs> oh, we have to get a name for that. Oh, those still lives. The yeah. still lives, right, yeah. with the uh, bound rocks and apples and so forth. Um, and the great, the wonderful, one of the wonderful things about it is, of course, the humor. Yeah, I hope okay. so. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just uh, really is so attractive, and I and I think you've personally think you've come across a, 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 a device, not a device, but a, a way yeah, of yeah. moving into that yeah. that is uh, really useful in terms of you know attracting people into the yeah. into the art. Can you talk a little bit, just briefly, about the the sense of using humor? Because I think have a I have a suspicion that. I didn't get that sense from earlier earlier work that there's. Well, I've used humor throughout. Um, maybe people weren't getting Sorry, my jokes. No, no, <laughs> no I, some, I know some of the cartoon stuff. You know, yeah, you just know, cartoon. But in this case, I feel they're mature, confident works, and uh, it's interesting because I made them and I was showing them one a week on Facebook, and getting some wonderful uh, responses. But you almost always only get wonderful responses to art. Um, and this first time I showed them and people were laughing out loud, which is what I need. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, they're going by kind of quickly, but uh, already people were getting a sense of them. And in fact, uh, uh, the editor of Canadian Art came to the studio and couldn't stop looking at them. We were there for some other business. And then she ended up doing conversation with me and it's in the last page of the most recent issue. And I feel that it's, it's approachable work. And yet the, the, the different themes that I want people to get to are there, but it's the 10%. I want them to go to read those books too, you know. I want them to ask other people, well, what is it, what does it mean to be Indigenous in the institution? Is that an oxymoron or how do people navigate it? And we all do it differently. You know, some people become super Indians and traditional. Other become cosmopolitan. There's such a range. And I'm so excited by these possibilities that are more numerous than at previous Times. Well, I must say that the humor is a is a very interesting way into your rage, David. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I don't I don't have a lot of personal rage. I really really don't. What I was articulating was in that passage was it goes to varieties of masculinity that I really wanted to do a PhD on, but I just didn't find a place for myself in English. Um, I want to go back to the visual, but. Um, I was very interested in how these men were not allowed to be angry because they would be threatening, mm. you know? And yet I was watching, especially later, I was watching the faces of grown men who were at that instant boys. And that empathetic rage is what I felt more. Um, and I feel that my even-temperedness is my greatest privilege next to being able-bodied at the moment. <laughs> And having the energy to make representations or make statements somewhat on the behalf of others without speaking for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't come from a place of 
rage accepting uh, the inequities that no, we I, know. Yeah, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. No, I wasn't implying that you're, you know that, that your work is rooted in rage, but no. that, that's an element that you that. Uh, but I think that's is, in Diamond Grill too. There, you know, there's where an anger, yeah, yeah, simmering, a simmering, uh, you know, whether whether you're slave labor or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, thanks very much for this uh, this too. interview. I lo- really look forward to seeing that series of paintings and it's just beautiful. Thanks for your generosity in this conversation, Fred. Thanks, David. We hope you enjoyed this interview of David Garneau by Fred Waugh. I'm Rebecca Jelaine, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trin Delaney, Rebecca Jelaine, Isabel Michalski, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.